Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. According to a recent Children's Commissioner report, we have one in four children, that's 1.7 million children, who are now regularly absent from school. So what does this look like in five or ten years' time? And, you know, we also have, as far as I can see, a, a government who are, you know, burying their heads in the sand about this. You know, this is an absolute, it's a national emergency, actually, and it's one that is going to have such huge costs and consequences. Hello and welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guests this week, Liz Cole and Molly Kingsley. Welcome to the show, Liz and Molly. Thank you. Thank you, Brendan. So you are the authors of a really critical and essential new book called The Children's Inquiry. The subtitle is How the State and Society Failed the Young During the COVID-19 Pandemic. Now, there's a lot to unpick with this book in terms of the impact the school closures had, the impact of masks in classrooms, the lack of discussion around these issues, all sorts of ways in which the lockdown moment really impacted negatively on children's lives. So I want to get into all of that stuff, but just to kick us off and just to give our listeners a sense of what this book is about, Molly, why don't you outline the general theme of the book and why you guys felt it was important to write this? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think if you had to distill um, it down into one theme, it would really be that the way we have treated children, you know, whether deliberately or whether by default over the last two years, has, we feel, broken the social contract that adults um, you know, owe and, and, and have to children. And what we have done, um, I think, and it's something we and others say in the book, goes far beyond anything we expected to see in our lifetime. We think we, you know, the evidence, as I'm sure we'll come on to now, speaks for itself in terms of the detriment we've caused those children. But really, on some higher level, we've inverted, you know, natural justice and, and morality when it comes to an adult's duty to protect its child. So, Liz, what was the key thing for you when the lockdown started, when you started thinking this is going to be bad for kids? What was the turning point for you? Because obviously, if we go back to March 2020 or even slightly earlier than that we have this new virus it's not particularly well understood lots of people felt very scared and didn't know what was going on lots of us were shocked that we went into lockdown at all that was a very unusual historical moment um, but for you what was the moment where you thought okay not only are we living in this era of a new virus and a new response to viruses, but this is going to be particularly bad for children. Was there a moment where you thought we're, we're doing the wrong thing here? Yeah, there was. And it was twofold, really. So it was something that came you know, from within my own, my own family and my own life, but also what I was seeing um, outside of that. So, you know, I could see my, my children who were, um, one of them was, was, 12 and one of them was was 10 and I just saw such a change in them um even over a fairly you know short period of time these were you know, busy thriving children we had a good situation we had a garden and we had all the resources available 
Um, but I could see how deeply it was it was affecting them. Really, the lack of interaction, um, the lack of ability to to connect with anyone um, outside, missing school, missing their routine. And I started thinking, if this is how my children are feeling, children in in other situations without um, those advantages, it must be you know so so much worse for them. And then coupled with that. Um, I came across a editorial which was in the, the BMJ. It was from April 2020 um, by pediatric researchers um, Alistair Munro and, and Saul Faust. I think that's the right pronunciation. Um, who were writing that children aren't super spreaders. It's time to go back to school. And I found that it, it was something that it, it made me just start thinking in a completely different way about this and thinking, well actually these researchers are saying this why aren't all children going back to school and i could see how with the absence of school how important it actually was and that sort of sparked me off to researching and thinking about it much more um and then connected with molly um not long after that so molly you guys mentioned the tearing apart of the social contract which i think is a really important thing to talk about in terms of what that means and why it was such a serious thing to have happened. So if we go back to early 2020, so on the 18th of March, 2020, uh, the Boris Johnson announces that all schools are going to close and they remain closed for months and months uh, for longer than any other country in Europe. I think schools were shut, children were shut out of schools. And I remember thinking at the time, even though I, like everyone else, I was thinking, how bad is this virus? What's going to happen? Lots of people seem to be dying. Uh, is this the right, is lockdown the right response or is it the wrong response? I was thinking all those things like everyone else in the country, I'm sure. But I remember when the schools closed, I remember thinking this is something actually very different because this is society deciding, consciously deciding to stop doing one of the most important things that a society does, which is to educate children, give children a place in which they can be given knowledge, in which they can socialize, in which they can carry on their journey to becoming adults. And for society to stop doing that for a significant period of time really struck me as odd and quite scary that that decision could be made. So uh, Molly, what was your response when that call was made that schools were going to be closed and and the fact that they stayed closed for so long and i think you guys point out that even when it came to a point where we could go back to pubs in some capacity or at least have a drink outdoors even then schools were still closed like children were at the bottom of the list how did you feel about that molly when that was happening yeah i mean i think again there's a few points to unpick there actually so i think the first thing to say in the you know interest of just full honesty is i think at first like many other people we didn't really i didn't really take on board what a long-term decision or you know long this sort of monumental nature of the decision i think you know you thought oh it's something big but actually we thought it was for three weeks and it was a different climate you know wheeling back to march 2020 i think a lot of people probably myself included were genuinely scared about covid and it you know it wasn't immediately clear that this wasn't that this was a very discriminatory virus um and you know as as you say that became clearer i think as march wore on into april into may and i think as liz said by april we were certainly the end of april we were a lot clearer that actually thankfully um most 
um, of the adult population, actually, let alone children, were not at huge risk from the virus. And that helped to frame um, the way, you know, the, you see the sort of risk benefit <laughs> analysis of closing schools. And I think, I think the other thing you said, and particularly as regards to social contract, the, the mm. thing for me about school closures is that obviously it goes far beyond education. So, you know, obviously schools are vastly important for an educational point of view and, and we've never taken away children's education before. So in itself, that is a really big thing to do. However, what we now know, and in fact, what was known at the time, Brendan, was that schools were essential for safeguarding. So, you know, there was a report done by experts very, very early on, April 2020, and that report was annexed to a SAGE um, document. It was, who knows, it was in a meeting room, one assumed, <laughs> with SAGE scientists. We know, we think we know from the minutes of the meeting, it was never actually discussed. But had it been discussed, what that report would have showed is that school is essential for safeguarding and that the safeguarding regime, once schools were closed by that point, about six months, uh, six weeks, sorry, had failed. So you have all these already very vulnerable children off school who are in an incredibly high risk situation. And this report said that. And I think when you talk about breaking the social, social contract, it is that element of, it's not even foreseeability, actually, it's just it's knowledge. We, we did this to children, knowing that, you know, not only would we deprive them of education, but in some cases, we would injure them and potentially deprive them of their life. And school closures is a very visible, much discussed manifestation of that. But actually, you could say that same principle and that same thinking was repeated over and over again with many of our interventions. Um, and, I, you know, I think that's when we talk about breaking the social contract, what, what we find so upsetting. Yeah. And I think, you know, you would really need to be pretty clueless or at least just not have any, any knowledge of how society works to think that you could take millions of kids out of school leave them in homes in which parents were under extraordinary pressure anyway, because they were not working. Some of them were gonna, going to lose their jobs. Uh, times were tough. People often live in cramped conditions without gardens, unlike lots of the upper middle classes who are very favorable towards some of the lockdown measures. And the idea that you could do that and there wouldn't be consequences in terms of children's education and children's health strikes me as just completely ridiculous. And it's very interesting that you guys uncovered this next report that was part of the SAGE process, where it was openly discussed that these would be some of the problems that would accrue from closing schools. But I want to dig down now into some of the evidence, because what I like about your book, there are many things I like about it. I like the fact that it's called the Children's Inquiry. So it really is the thing that the government hasn't yet done, which is an inquiry into the consequences of some of the decisions that were made in, in 2020. So let's talk about some of those consequences. So there's loads of stuff in the book, and some of it is really shocking, right from increased levels of obesity through to very young children not being school ready when they're going into kindergarten or, or reception and right through to rising numbers of mental health referrals for children, all of these kinds of consequences that have taken place. So Liz, could you just describe some of the things that you found in terms of the detrimental impact that taking children out of education and locking them in their homes has had? 
Yeah, I mean, they're enormous and, and wide ranging. So um, maybe we'll, we'll just look, I'll just discuss a couple, one mm. of which I think hasn't had anywhere near sufficient airtime or discussion um, in discourse at the moment, which is the impact on um, speech and language development for children, which again, as Molly had said, would be completely intuitively foreseeable to anyone that you know when a, when a child is developing language they acquire that language often through the experiences that they have they go out to you know, visit visit places they acquire vocabulary in that way um, with their parents talking to them because they've got time because they're not they're not stressed etc um, but the impact on speech and language development um, is incredibly concerning um, we spoke with um, a speech and language therapist, um, Sandy Chapel, who told me that um, prior to the pandemic, she was receiving one or two referrals a month um, into her practice. And when I last spoke with her, she told me she's receiving one or two referrals a day. And given the nature of the resources available um, for speech and language therapy, that's incredibly concerning. She's incredibly concerned. Um, we, we share that concern because I think what's not being appreciated, and as Molly said, these are lifelong, potentially lifelong impacts on children. So where a child doesn't have that um, speech and language development, where they have struggles with communication, they'll carry that with them into school. It will make it more difficult for them to build relationships, to access um, education and continue um, throughout their school career and into their adult lives. And I feel this isn't being, it's not being sufficiently appreciated what the impact and consequences are going to be of that on those individual children, but also on the school environment, on society as a whole in the future. And I feel it's a, it's a, it's a cliche, but it's a, it's a ticking time bomb. I think some of one of the other areas that I found was again, hasn't really been discussed as much of some of the other impacts that we know about mental health. But it's this sense that, you know, teenagers, um, older children that haven't actually built up the experiences, again, it's developmental milestones that they need in order to progress in their lives. The whole idea, you know, as you when you raise children, you're, you're, you're helping them move towards independence and they haven't got those structures in place necessarily to be able to do that and build up that the knowledge and, and um, experience they need to be able to move forward in their lives. And it's absolutely tragic to hear um, from an educational psychologist that, you know, some children have just withdrawn completely and now, you know, they're effectively staying behind closed doors because, you know, where they haven't actually been able to face those anxieties of going out into the world um, in the end, it becomes incredibly difficult to take those steps. And again, this doesn't seem to have received as much consideration because, again, it's a long-term impact on our whole um, society. And then, Molly, maybe talk about a little bit about the sort of physical health impacts that we've seen as well. I mean, just adding to what Liz said, I think, you know, I think a lot of these impacts are seeping into public consciousness. But I don't yet get a sense of the public grasping the sheer scale of it. So just to give you some numbers here at what we're faced with, and you know, speaking to Liz's point about this being a ticking time bomb, it really is. So we now have 46% of children who 
entered reception in 2020 not being school ready. We have one in four children by the time they are 11 being obese. We have 52% apparently of children um, saying, or young people saying they've lost confidence in themselves. We've got a waiting list of a million (laughs) children to specialist mental health. And then this is one, I think, that of all of these shocking stats, I almost find most shocking. According to a recent Children's Commissioner report, we have one in four children, that's 1.7 million children who are now regularly absent from school. So what does this look like in five or 10 years time? And, you know, we also have, as far as I can see, a a government who are, you know, burying their heads in the sand about this. You know, this is an absolute, it's a national emergency, actually. And it's one that is going to have such huge costs and consequences. And I think just going back to the point about the physical impacts, you know, I think there is this myth through much of school closures that, well, it's a bit of education, it's a few months of learning. And and that in itself is a very elitist myth because actually that might have been true for some lucky kids in their garden with their engaged parents doing Zoom lessons. But we know, you know, we, we know and actually government knew at the time it was not true for very many children. But just putting that to one side, of course, the other thing is the physical impact. So, you know, it's had... Um, as Liz said, the lockdown and school closures, a cumulative impact has had a very profound um, effect on obesity, on general fitness. There's a lot of sports still not starting. You know, combine that with cost of living um, or, you know, cost of lockdown, if I might say, um, you know, uh, impacts. And you've got things like swimming pools that are now, I think I read something like a quarter of public pools are about to close because they can't afford their heating bills. Um, you've got children that have missed close to two years of, in some cases, critical health appointments, you know, children, many of whom already had existing issues, son and disabled children in particular. You've got an NHS that's crumbling. So we saw yesterday, I think it was, this waiting list of 350,000 children. You know, that's up, I can't remember the percent, but I think it's up by about 100,000 children from pre pandemic so we've got us you know we've weakened children and we've weakened the systems that would ordinarily support those children yeah i think the things that you two have just outlined there and which you outline in the book are on one level it's really disturbing and shocking but on another level it makes perfect sense that this would be the consequence if you basically turn the national health service into the national covid service so you actively discourage people from going and if you cl- close down schools which we've been told for the past few years right from tony blair's education 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 onwards we've been told these are the most important institutions in the country but by the way we can now shut them down uh, almost for a year and if you do those things and then tell people they can't go outside once a day, a bit of exercise and then go back home. It makes perfect sense that there would be physical, educational consequences to that. And uh, talking about them, I think, is so, so important. But there's a few more things I want to ask you guys about education. But I just want to come on to the broader picture for a moment, because you talk there about the vast numbers of children who are still not going back to school regularly, which I think seems to be another logical conclusion to society effectively saying that schools aren't that important, right? If you say schools aren't that important, you can't be surprised if families then come to a similar conclusion and children start missing lots of uh, their schooling. But there's also the problem of the use of the politics of terror, 
during the lockdown. And a few people have raised this criticism, including a couple of people around Sage, the problem of using fear to try to reprimand and control the public during what was unquestionably a new and difficult and sometimes quite scary moment in, in British history. But instead of trying to galvanize people and saying, look, we have this problem that's reached our shores and we need to pull together as a society and, and work it out. Instead, the politics of terror was used. You should be terrified. This, is an, uh, this disease can impact on anyone. If you go outside, you might kill an elderly person. That kind of use of fear was a key problem in the lockdown, wasn't it? Liz, I'll put that to you. And and isn't that likely to have had a ripple effect on children too, if they're being told that they could potentially kill older people simply by going outdoors and doing what kids do? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's 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 seeped in in, in so many different ways. So I think, you know, as, as you say, the messaging to children about them, about themselves, um, this language of fear, and actually, as we discuss in the book, Children were obviously seen as a source of fear as well. Not only were they told to be frightened, they were told that they themselves were to be feared. Um, they were, you know, constantly described as vectors, as as reservoirs that schools were petri dishes, and you know that they themselves were something that were a danger. They presented a danger to their to their families, to their elderly relatives, to their to their teachers and people that they came into contact with. So much so that the fact that one of the ironies is that the asymptomatic nature of the disease often in children wasn't seen as something to be a blessing that we should be pleased about, a relief. It was yeah. actually that it was made children then something to be feared, that they were an existential threat to any adult who happened to come by them. And the idea that children don't absorb this message about themselves, it's its ludicrous. You know, we've heard many stories from um, families and parents within the group and from teenagers themselves about, you know, being told you know one child who was told by their teacher that they were they were brave for being there this was to a class of year sevens who just turned up to school after you know have, having had this whole pandemic um experience um another you know who who felt that the teachers were were afraid of them as they were walking in the corridor but also you know this whole you know it's it's it's, it's well spoken of now but this idea don't kill don't kill granny when actually children, yes, children, you know, did have a role in the disease, but they weren't the super spreaders. They didn't play a primary role. And what I find, you know, very concerning about this is that, you know, the, again, the idea that this won't have a knock-on effect on them, you know, that the, it, it breaks those bonds, it breaks those natural interactions, and it and it breaks it breaks trust as well. And I also find it a lot of the discussion has been so reductive because actually, even if children were, and we, we've said this before, but if children were super spreaders, does that mean we shouldn't then still care and nurture them? No, they, they, they weren't for this disease, but we shouldn't be making so many reductive arguments. But I think the fear also had a real impact on um, the difficulties that the government had in actually reopening schools because it was quite easy you know for them to close them at the stroke of a at the stroke of a pen um but actually the fear that was that was there the climate which you know they they had sort of nudged everybody towards uh, made it incredibly difficult um to reopen them but has also 
meant that school is even now, I think, seen, as you say, it's a discretionary benefit and a, and a, and a lever, a policy lever for, for, for emergencies, whereas previously it had been sacrosanct. So I think, I think that there'll be much regret in the future about having used this fear tool because it, it's, it's incredibly difficult to find an off-ramp from it. Yeah, it's it's made me laugh to hear Boris Johnson saying that the rail strike is causing so much harm to people because for three days people will have difficulty getting the train to work or the train to school. And I think, well, hold on, you shut down work and school for three months, if not longer. So I'm not sure you have the right to get on your high horse about harms that can be caused by inconveniences. But I think that's a really important point you make, Liz, about how this children as vectors and harmful to grannies and being encouraged to be scared, children being encouraged to be scared, but also to see themselves as scary, that's going to be have social costs, that's going to have social consequences. And I think one of the worst things it probably does is ratchet up the already existing intergenerational tensions. We live in a time when there are lots of generational tensions, most of which I think are completely unfruitful and unnecessary, you know, Zoomers versus Boomers and kids having their futures stolen by greedy older people, all these kinds of narratives we are bombarded with. And I think the lockdown experience probably increased those intergenerational tensions in a problematic way. Another thing I think the, the lockdown experience did, and you, you alluded to this already, Molly, is uh, in relation to class differentials. So, you know, you said it, it's lucky for some kids who were being educated at home. So if you are at home and you're having a Zoom education, that might work if you live in a huge house with university educated parents who have got the time to be attentive to you, but it's not going to work if you live in a smaller house with lots of kids and not very many gadgets. And I often think, what would it, what would it have been like for my family if this had happened back in the 80s? I, there were six kids in a small house. And if we had been at home being educated via a, a ZX Spectrum, or, even though that would not have been possible in the 1980s, we just would have got no education. It would not have happened at any level. And I'm sure that's the case for some families. So Molly, isn't one of the problems that the educational differentials between classes, which already existed anyway, have been intensified by the closures of schools. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely has. And I think, um, I don't know if you've heard what Jay Bashara has to say on this, and who was on your show too, but he, you know, he calls school closures the single biggest um, driver of inequity mm. of all time, I think, from a single policy. And I think we would agree with that. And I think, you raise a very interesting point, actually, which is, you know, what would it have been like in the 1980s or 1990s, maybe even 2000s, actually, you might have to go back that far. And I think there is what we saw in 2020 was a bit of a myth that because some families and some children had access to the Internet. And let's be very clear, it was always known that at best it was some. So there was a report, something else we mentioned in the book, actually, we discovered that there was a report done just before the pandemic, um, you know, maybe even the February, I think, of 2020. And Ofcom report, and it was commissioned, I think, by the Children's Commissioner, with the Children's Commissioner, but the and that that very clearly showed that there was this huge digital divide where you know there there are literally the haves and the haves not the have nots, 
Um, so this was known and it was known that layering education onto this very patchy infrastructure was always going to fail. But because some families had it, you know, it, it, we allowed this myth to take root that you could deliver school through a computer. And it was, you know, and many would say <laughs> that actually even for those children and families that had a computer and had internet, actually it was a myth. I think, you know, having certainly watched my own children at very young, they're five and eight now, younger then, and, it, you know, trying to homeschool a four-year-old on a on Zoom was just an absolute disaster. And we, we came to review actually a very detrimental disaster. So we just closed it down after a few weeks, but we were the lucky ones. And actually it was known from the beginning that many families just didn't have this. So it was just a lie, wasn't it? Like we shouldn't have been mm. doing this. Like who, who said that this, this should have been a thing. And I think there was this, you know, remote learning and it was just, it was dishonest actually. And it was dishonest of everyone. It was dishonest of government, but it, you know, was also, I think, a societal uh, lie that actually we should have stood up collectively and said, but this isn't going to work for so many children and families. What are we doing even thinking about this? They don't have computers. So that should have ended it there and then. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things it's worth thinking about is why that pushback didn't come. I mean, obviously it came from people like you and the organization you guys are involved in, us for them and other individuals and groups who raised questions about these problems. Um, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about is why there wasn't a, a broader questioning or a broader rebellion at some level. And the, the thing that really struck me, I'll, I'll put this to you, Liz, was the role of educational trade unions in relation to basically just not wanting to do their job and uh, in terms of going back to school and teaching kids or going into universities and having face-to-face -face lectures with young people lots of uh, students were in the most surreal situation of going to their university and staying in their dormitories and being educated on their computer. I mean, I'm sure we'll look back on this in 20 years time, I think, what the hell was going on there? But isn't this a broader question of a crisis of vocation? Because the image we have of the teacher, and it used to be a fairly accurate image, is that a teacher was not just someone who was doing a job. This is someone who felt they had a vocation. They were part of, we've referred to it as a social contract, they were part of a mission, I guess, to educate kids, turn young boys into gentlemen, raise them up a bit. You know, it was seen as a bit of a vocational thing to do. Whereas we had a situation where lots of teachers were reluctant to go back to the classroom and lots of trade unions were saying they shouldn't go back to the classroom because children are diseased and it's too dangerous. So Liz, isn't there, this raises a broader question about society, doesn't it? It's not just that we may have overreacted to the virus or responded to it in such a way that it, it was detrimental to children, but it speaks to a society that has lost its nerve to a certain extent. If it isn't even prepared to take a risk or find a way to carry on the vocation of educating children, even at a time of disease and virus. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is a, a very complex issue, mm. as, as we've said in the book. I think the, the climate of terror, I think, under underlays all of this because that fed um, so much of the effectively firefight between various groups of, of adults who you know never seem to look up from from that to think about you know the, the children sort of cowering underneath um, the, the crossfire uh, who were being failed at, at all turns 
But I think, you know, in terms of the the sense of losing nerve, I think it's a sense of, of losing a sense of responsibility. And I, I do think this is, you know, adult society at, at large, because the creativity that we saw, for example, in terms of the NHS, the, um, you know, volunteer scheme that, that was put in place, um, the Nightingale hospitals, albeit that they, they weren't used, but no similar collective national will or energy was applied towards, you know, the, the priority of educating children and coming together, thinking about solutions. So I think, you know, really, um, you know, the role of, of the, of the teaching unions, I think was, you know, it was, a, it was a difficult one, um, throughout, throughout the pandemic. Um, I know we've had, differences with some of the stakeholders there. But I think on the whole, the government was responsible for leading from the front, as you said earlier, Brendan, with a sense of positivity. We have a problem here. How are we going to put a solution in place? Not using these tactics of of fear and actually thinking about the vulnerable people in society. And one of those groups was was children, and we should have been focusing our efforts to to care for those children. And you know, it, previously in disasters, that's what we would have done: would be to prioritise young people and come together with a sense of positivity across you know different divides and different opinions, and not make it into an adult conflict, which is effectively what it ended up being. And, yeah. and the children's commissioner did actually say. Um, at the point when um, you know pubs were open um, and, and most children couldn't go go to school, she did say you know that that adults should really just stop squabbling, and I think that is a, a you know characterises the situation well. It's it's a, it's a squabble um, that has now you know caused untold harm to children. Yeah, I think one of the great tragedies of the lockdown was the the wasting off so many people's desire to help society. So as you say, early on, when we had the NHS calling for volunteers, hundreds of thousands of people signed up for that, but it didn't really come to very much. It kind of dissipated. It wasn't clear how these people's energy could be utilized. And quite early on, a decision was clearly made to switch from trying to galvanize the public to take this disease on to using fear to make us all stay at home. And I remember the time that happened because I remember very early on in March, 2020, where I live, there were lots of local initiatives and people were buying stuff for elderly neighbors and food. And I was involved in it and there was lots of stuff going on, but it seemed to just dissipate and fade away. And eventually people were locking themselves indoors, phoning those snitch hotlines if they saw someone mingling outside when they shouldn't have been. And there was a very tragic, palpable turn away from that positivity towards the politics of fear. And in you know forcing people to comply rather than encouraging them to get involved in helping society, so I think that's a, that's a very good point. I, there's one there's one part of the book that I did want to push back on to a certain extent, which um, I'll put this to you to start with, Molly, which is just on the issue of mental health, and I think your statistics on this are really good and deeply disturbing in terms of the growing numbers of kids who are presenting with mental health difficulties and getting treatment and assistance and so on. But And and I guess this is a broader question that goes beyond lockdown, but I just wonder to what it, 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 
could it potentially be a problem that we encourage kids and young people to understand their feelings and their emotions and their difficulties through the mental health prism? Now, I understand perfectly well why children do this. I was recently doing a radio show where we were talking about the growing trend in some ways for describing oneself as being mentally unwell or mentally unstable. Uh, I There was a really good interview with a, a psychologist a few years ago who said that people now go to her surgery and say, can you please diagnose me with bipolar disorder? Because they think it's the explanation for every problem that they have. And they also think it's become a fashionable illness to have in some ways. So I understand why people understand their problems in this way, but isn't it potentially a problem that they do and a problem that could end up exactly, if we say to kids, you've been made mentally unwell by the experiences of the past two years, and that's certainly how the kids themselves understand their predicament, isn't there a, a danger that we will exacerbate their feelings of weakness and isolation? and their sense that when society throws difficulties at them, they will necessarily feel mentally frail as a result. Molly, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, actually, I am probably going to say something very on PC now, but I couldn't agree more with that. <laughs> I think one of the problems that, you know, I mean, I think we can't deny that there are a lot of very unhappy and mm. very disturbed children as a result of what, and young people as a result of what happened. I mean, that's, you know, I think that's undeniable. I think one of the things that we have been worried about is this emphasis, and we've seen a lot of it from various quarters, including government, actually, this emphasis on what to us looks like curing existing symptoms rather than trying to prevent the symptoms and to develop what we would consider would be true resilience. So mm. we would all like to see happier kids. I think we can take that as assumed. Personally, we are, I think, cynical. Liz, correct me if you know you wouldn't go this far, but I think we are a bit cynical or at least have a question mark about some of the initiatives which have been suggested, which really do emphasize, I think as you've said, Brendan, you know, mental health rather than, you know, what about overall well-being? What about physical health? Because we know that's linked. What about encouraging children and enabling children to do far more of the activities that we know would help them getting would help prevent them getting these problems in the first place so obviously i'm thinking about things like sport and music and extra extracurricular you know play actually mm -hmm. just let kids play and younger kids anyway and i think we would like to see a school system um, and actually it's more than school because it's a whole societal system. I think the community has a big part to play, but you know, we would like to see the infrastructure there that actually really helped children develop other interests and skills and resilience so that actually they're not needing, we're not needing to talk about, let's put a mental health clinic in every school, noble aim though that might be. We don't think that is certainly not the sole way to address what is now a huge societal issue. Yeah, can I just add to that yeah. as well? I think we saw this dynamic playing out earlier on in the pandemic when there was a lot of talk about putting the mental health counsellors in schools that children were, were struggling, which they were. But this was at a point when children didn't have any access to their normal lives. So, of course, they were going to feel, you know, they were in, in an incredibly difficult situation. Um, so actually what we, we'd said at the time was we really do need to stop 
sort of undermining children's normal lives before we can even we should even be going you know having these kind of conversations let's give children that stability um as the first port of call really um and it was kind of preemptive when when actually to us the normal structures were, were, were the most important foundation really How Woke Won, the new spiked book by Joanna Williams, is out now. It is all about the woke takeover of our institutions and how we as ordinary people can fight back. I cannot recommend it enough. Make sure you order your copy now. You can get it on Amazon or go to spiked-online.com slash shop. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. I think one of the things I found so frustrating about the discussion in 2020 and, and 2021 was that, um, w- you know, we live in a society in which the signal that children get all the time is that every aspect of life can potentially stress you out and make you feel mental difficulty. So they are told that exa- exams are going to increase their anxiety and going to university is a leap forward that will destabilize them and they might need to see the mental health counselor at university. So there's this constant encouragement to young people to, I think, see every normal difficulty in life as potentially having a detrimental impact on their mental health, which I think is a kind of dangerous trend. But then you have lockdown and these kids who've been told you send that message for years and years are suddenly being told, well, not being able to see your friends and not going to school and being stuck in your flat for three months is fine. And you should just get on with it. Even though we've spent the past few years telling you that every uh, small difficulty you face is going to have a detrimental impact on you. So there was something deeply contradictory and hypocritical in that, I think. And if we lived in a society in which we were encouraging children to be more robust and resilient and self-sufficient and to understand that unhappiness and anxiety are normal facets of the human existence, then they probably would have been better able to deal with the lockdown. Uh, so that kind of contradiction between a society that understands young people as vulnerable and frail, but then expects them to cope perfectly well with having their world turned upside down. I just thought that was complete unacceptable levels of hypocrisy. But going forward, I'll put this to you, Molly, going forward, don't you think, in just in re- sticking with the mental health issue for one more moment, don't you think it would it would be better in the long run if we could encourage children not to see their feelings as evidence of a mental imbalance or a mental a problem of mental ill health but to see them as normal feelings and to encourage them to develop the moral resources and the community resources to be able to deal with these problems as and when they arise yes i mean absolutely and i think teaching our kids resilience is incredibly important, but I'm slightly scratching my head sort of saying this because the problem, you know, one of the things I think we've learned actually as a society, you know, can we hand on heart say that as adults, we've shown resilience in these last two years? I mean, how are we meant to teach children what we seem unable to execute ourselves? And I think we have to take a look actually at what, you know, where we would like our children to be and ask ourselves what we need to change about ourselves to, to get them there. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree with that. Okay. So my final question, which I'll put to both of you, it's kind of, it's a question about the past and the future, I suppose. So I guess something that people will say to 
guys like you who work with us for them, which is a very important campaigning group, and you've written this very important book, The Children's Inquiry, I think probably a question you've been asked is, well, what would you have done in March 2020? There's this new virus. We know it's killed lots of people in Italy. We know it's it's having a detrimental impact. It's come to the UK. We knew quite early on that it didn't have a particularly harsh impact on young people. They managed it very well, but we knew that they were able to spread it, even if they may not have been the super spreaders that we thought they were. So the, I guess the a question is, what would you have done in March and April 2020? Would you have had no lockdown? Would you have kept schools completely open or maybe mixed it up a bit? How would you have responded? And then the future orientated bit of that, I suppose, which you can weave into it, is how do we respond next time this happens? Next time a virus comes to the UK, how can we ensure that we don't do the things that we think we did wrong first time around? I've got a very simple answer. I think we should have stuck to our previous disaster planning mm. approach, which hadn't provided for school closures on on this scale at all. Um, so that would be the first thing. I think closing schools was a was a disaster. Um, they shouldn't have closed in March 2020. They they certainly shouldn't have closed in January 2021. That was really the you know the bottom of the heap as far as the decision making went. I think at a more philosophical level, I think we should have prioritised children as a vulnerable group in society. I think there should have been. I'm off on one here now, sorry. There should have been honesty about the risk stratification of the disease. Um, and I think this kind of sh- you know short-circuiting that the government wanted to do to gain compliance of creating fear um, was a huge, huge, huge mistake. And we'll see the repercussions of that for, for years to come. And I think moving forward, what we should be doing now is really protecting, protecting children and their education and recognizing schools as essential infrastructure that you know is is not closed at the stroke of a minister's pen and is actually recognized for the important setting that it is i mean i think the only thing that i would add to that um possibly on the going forward side is that you know i think what we found what we had during the pandemic was really a situation and it was rare i think but we had a situation where the interests of adults or some adults directly conflicted with the interests of the majority, let's say, of children. And in that situation, there was only ever going to be one winner. And I think what we need now to do is to safeguard, yes, our schools, but actually it's more than that. It's to safeguard our children so that actually if that situation happens again, children don't I was going to say fall through the fault lines. Maybe I'd go as far as to say get pushed through the fault lines in the same way that they did. It, you know, we, what we've just witnessed is actually a systemic safeguarding failure, and we need to make sure that can never happen again. Molly and Liz, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at 
www.spiked-online.com.